This podcast was recorded late January of 2016. We went to Joplin, Missouri, to the campus of Ozark Christian College, where Professor Mark Scott sat down to talk with us about the book of Matthew. We're in a long series on the book of Matthew here at the church, and we thought it was a good time to hear about that topic. Welcome to another episode of Consider This Question. Today we are going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Matthew with uh, one of my teachers who actually I had an opportunity, a great opportunity, to to learn the Gospel of Matthew. I took uh, this gentleman uh, for that class when I was in undergrad school at Ozark Christian College, and so we're here with him. Uh, he is, he probably wouldn't like it when I say this, but he is Dr. Mark Scott. Uh, I know him as Brother Scott or Mr. Scott or Rabbi, uh, all these things I've, I've referred to him as. Uh, but we are here, and uh, he is a professor of preaching and New Testament at Ozark Christian College. He's a former academic dean, but uh, definitely somebody that's been very influential in my life and in my thinking, and not just me, but um, almost everybody on staff actually who attended Ozark, except for Drew. Yep. You never had a class. Never took a class. Nope. I, I tried to avoid the hard ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are less of a human for yeah, this, I know. but, uh, but Jesus, is <laughs> Jesus is grace will take care of you. Um, anyway, and so basically uh, we're, we're here to talk with Mark. He uh, again taught the the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew teaching now, I believe the life of Christ is another class that you're actually teaching now. Um, and I, I, what I've loved about Mark is his uh, desire to not just teach through uh, verse by verse, uh, a book like this, but actually his love for preaching in general and the church in general. And so that's why we thought this would be good for him to come along. So, you know, I want to begin by this, Mark. Um, you have actually talked uh, quite a bit. I've heard you say this, that you've recommended that churches regularly work through the Gospels. That's what you told me one time. That's correct. Um, and so tell me why it is that you think it is so critical or so important that as church leaders and preachers and teachers, that the Gospels are such a big deal for the life of the church. Yeah. Well, let me empty out, first of all, just my little puny opinion about that, because it wasn't really me emphasizing that. In the history of the church, (laughs) the church found their way back to these books over and over, and the whole development of what we typically call the Christian calendar where there's a rhythm about Christmas and Easter and Pentecost and things like that. That's where this develops. So it certainly predates me, <laughs> but not a lot of things predate me anymore. I would list, though, for my answer for that, which is a great question about why the gospel is so important in the life and ministry of the church. First of all, I think it's because the gospels are the apex of the Bible. You have to be careful with this because all truths are equally true, but not all truths are of equal importance. All Bible verses are inspired, but not all Bible verses are of equal significance. It's almost as if God put a highlighter in the hands of the 40 or some people that wrote the Bible and inspired by the Spirit, they underlined or highlighted things that were big. The Bible's not flat. It's got mountains and valleys. And so we're talking about the the high water marks when you talk about the Gospels. It's not we're picking and choosing just because we like them more. Mm-hmm. It's that the Bible's own story unfolds this way. The Old Testament books lead up to the Gospels. The epistles, if one of my teachers, Brother Wilson, was right, are doctrinal commentaries to the church about how to live the life of Christ. So the epistles and Revelation look back at the Gospels. And so the first thing I would say to your good question is that the Gospels are an, an apex of the Bible. 
they are the archway. A second thing is they really have become in the history of the church, the story within the story. The Bible is an unfolding story. Uh, Gardner Taylor says that the story of the Bible is about a God who's out to get back what rightfully belongs to him. Mm -hmm. Well, inside of that big story, there are a lot of little stories. And the Gospels are sort of that story within the story. People talk about the canon, the authorized books of the Bible, as opposed to the ones that aren't and recognized as them not being. Well, yeah, I would have to say my default setting is that, yeah, that would, those would be the canon within the canon. It's not, again, because we're picking and choosing what we sure. like. It's a matter that the Bible's own testimony is there. So it's the story within the story. A third thing I would say is, why is it so important in the life of the church and, and ministry is because Jesus so easily gets marginalized in church work if we're not careful. It seems odd, but Jesus can get lost at church. He can get lost in the church. Well, his parents lost him. Remember that? I I gave you my son and you couldn't keep him intact. Um, But, you know, I mean, yes, it happened as early as Luke 2 in a literal, (laughs) physical way. But boy, has it really happened down through church history. And it's bad that in places of theology, Jesus got lost. And so the, the church with this rhythm returns to the Gospels over and over again, even in mainline churches and Catholic bodies and Greek Orthodox, and they will have a Gospel reading, a Gospel lesson, by which they really mean just reading a portion of the Gospels for the day. So that's a third reason. And a fourth thing is we are always in danger, it seems like to me, of institutionalizing the church. I think God intended a much more organic thing than we sometimes see and are, and the study of the Gospels will keep us from that. They're fresh, they're lively. Jesus takes on official aspects of Judaism and sort of takes them to the woodshed. And it is the nature of man to institutionalize things. And it's almost the nature of God to de-institutionalize them. Don't get them so stiff and stuffy and, you know, rigid. Uh, And the Gospels blow any rigidity out of the water, pretty much. So for those reasons, I'm drawn to them like the church should be, it seems like me, over the life and uh, over the year, I should say, calendar year. Now, tell me this. You, 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 you've been a churchman, right? And you were preaching in the church regularly. Um, you've all, you always have, as long as I've known you, that's been just a natural place for your context. So the, the classroom, as much as you're very comfortable and gifted in it, you have a real heart for the church. So when you say Jesus gets lost, like where do we lose him? Like where, where do we as practitioners, where, where do we need to be careful that we don't lose Jesus? Well, in my little discipline of preaching in the church, um, I could tell you of the number of times, either in class from, ser- from student sermons or attending services in churches, where you can go through a whole Bible passage and never say anything about Jesus. Maybe it's the qualification of elders and deacons. Maybe it's how to have a healthy marriage. And Jesus never gets mentioned. Mm. So, and what's odd is, if you look in the text or the context, Brian Chappell says context is always part of text, Jesus is in fact there. So it's really a misreading of the Bible uh, in our inability to get to him. And it, I'm sure to put this on a whole nother spirit world uh, level, it's the duping of the devil. It's the enemy who doesn't want us to see Jesus in these, the guys on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has to show himself from the law, the prophets and the writings that he's really in there. It's a Christocentric or a Christ-centered uh, way of interpreting the Bible. 
Sure. And so it happens in our hermeneutics, our interpretations. It happens just in the pragmatics of daily church work. It happens in preaching and teaching. Uh, frankly, critique the songs of the church. Sometimes it happens there too. Hmm. Jesus gets marginalized. We talk about all kinds. I come from Iowa. We had a song in the old hymn books called The Little Brown Church in the Vale. It has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> it's a stupid song. And it's just pure emotion about romanticizing about a little church. In, I've been to the little church. I took a girl there one time. And so it wasn't my wife. But anyway, so, so, it's, it's just, uh, you know, so easy to do. I guess yeah. that's, that's the danger. And, and if you really go with, to church with, uh, on the one hand, eyes to worship, but ears just a little bit to critique. Will you hear the name Jesus at times? And sometimes not. Do either of you guys want to kind of chime in? I mean, how are we doing with that? I mean, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about the church in general or you want to talk about Sunnybrook in specific. You know, like Mark has influenced me. And so, yeah. as you know, we've gone already gone through John, although we didn't go through it as well as we probably could have. We've gone through Mark. We've gone through Luke. So this is the last one. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I'm quick to say, hey, I don't think we have, but... Your, your, your thoughts. I just want to say, I was just kind of processing what Mark was saying there. And because and, I think I, I am actually, I, you talk about the Gospels being the canon within the canon as, as of the utmost importance. And I think if you just kind of ask me, you know, just stop me on the street and say, where do you go most important? I probably go to something like Romans. I probably go yeah. to the epistles that are expounding on the deeper truths about Christ and what he's done. But um, even as you talk about, you know, that, that you cannot. Um, we're in danger of losing Jesus, that you can preach a sermon on the qualifications of elders or on a, on a good marriage and forget Jesus. It, it kind of reminds me that in those epistles that I love so much, Paul gives very little instruction without pushing back to the stories of the Gospels, without right. like his instructions for what a church ought to look like or what, or what marriage ought to look like or what Christianity is, is rooted in the stories of the Gospels and in what Jesus does. And so I don't know, it's just a good reminder for me that you, you can't properly preach the epistles without preaching through the gospel right. narratives, I guess. In the epistles, you have uh, both uh, un, in between the lines and certainly in the context and in the backstory, why the epistles being written to start with. I mean, whatever was happening in Colossae, for instance, they didn't yeah. have Jesus right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Jesus is all over that place. And yeah. if we look, we'll see him. That's good. Yep. Ryan, anything you want to add in terms of? No, I mean, I think it would have been seven, eight episodes ago. We did we did an episode on this very podcast about how to preach Christ from the Old Testament. And we were we were talking about this wanting to get this issue out there because we were at that point preaching through a series called The Gospel of the Law and the Land. Actually we came we had just come out of the Gospel of the Patriarchs. Patriarchs. Yep. So we did the uh, we did Genesis and, and into Exodus and then we pushed all the way through with the Gospel of the Law and the Land and we were talking about how it would be irresponsible for us as followers of Christ to preach these Old Testament texts that might not mention him by name without getting to him eventually. And so we were coming from books like Sidney Gradanus's book, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and Brian Chappell's book. And we were just saying like, yeah, when those, when those texts were originally written, you couldn't, you couldn't necessarily preach the cross like we can now. But we have a greater revelation and therefore a greater responsibility to do justice to these old covenant texts. And I think that we've actually had a burden as a staff to do that well over the last several years. And, and so now when we get to Matthew, it's very easy to emphasize on it. Um, but like you said, you, you really would do a disservice to any book in the Bible to not 
make your way to Christ. Yep, yep. You know, one of the things that uh, we talk about uh, at Sunnybrook here is the orange question, which is how do we get parents to partner with the church to disciple kids? And I get this all the time. So what should I read? Where should I read? And my answer is always, you never go wrong with the gospel. I mean, if you had to meet, if you have starting the Bible or starting the year, if you wanted to pick a book, where do I begin? I mean, I, I would rather you pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John than Genesis because there is just something that is more of value. It is more pertinent. It is more relevant to the Christian life than it is anywhere else. And so, you know, those are things that I would tell you. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about this, this isn't just a church leader issue, but this really comes back down to a discipleship question and a parenting orange type question. Um, Make sure that you're talking to your kids, not how to be nice, but how to be like Jesus. And therefore the gospels become a great, a great spot. Um, so, you know, when I, and I think of you, I think of a couple of classes that you, uh, I didn't take Mark with you, but I did actually take Matthew with you and you've always, you know, taught those two. Um, and so for whatever reason, um, I just kind of, I've always kind of put you with those two books, but I'm just going to ask you right now on the record, do you have a favorite, do you have a favorite gospel? Like, I mean, are we allowed to, I mean, I know you have a favorite child and I promise I won't tell. <laughs> in their you know, age uh, bracket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but tell me, I mean, do you have a favorite gospel or is it wrong to have a favorite? Well, tell me what you think about that. I suppose I really don't in, in some ways. My default setting is, as you mentioned, Matthew or Mark, because I had the privilege of teaching them in a rhythm every other fall, you sure. know, op- alternating. And uh, therefore, I think in terms of Matthew and Mark, 90% of Mark is in Matthew. And so, yeah, that's where I turn first when any gospel question comes up. One plus of being back at the college now and teaching the harmonized life of Christ chronologically is I'm expanding my perimeters in, in Luke and John. I guess I have a favorite in this sense. If I want to talk about what the king is really like and what does his kingdom look like when it collides with planet Earth, then uh, I probably turn to Matthew. Thank you. <laughs> our, our title for the series is called Jesus the King. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and it's all about kingdom type stuff. I, so I'm glad. I I'm, I'm, I'm... think it is very much about the, from the very <laughs> opening line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Well, he was a king and his name is mentioned before Abraham. So that's got to be the accent yeah. of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, of course, if you're dealing with a fast paced uh, servant, orientation, a cross mentality, how do we live the cruciform life, then I think Mark is the favorite. With Luke, the wide embrace of the grace of God, everybody has a place here, there's no one left out, uh, you know, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the, the ethnically diverse, uh, it, everybody's included in Luke's gospel. And John, uh, the, the life from above uh, comes from the divine son sent from heaven, Uh, In the early centuries of the church, one of the church fathers said that John set about to write a spiritual gospel since he considered the other three. (laughs) I keep thinking, I I hate for that church father to get to heaven and John comes up and, or the the synoptics, Matthew Mark would come up and say, so we didn't write a spiritual one. Is that what you're saying? But I suppose the synoptics are more earthy. Yeah. in some ways, yeah. but uh, John putting the divine touch to it. And really for John, uh, we wouldn't know the chronology very well without John. I mean, you could almost say that Jesus did everything in the synoptic gospels in one year. 
But in John, it's pretty clear. No, no, there's probably four Passovers in three years. Yeah. But we need John for the chronology, if nothing else. So those are my favorites on whatever day it is and how you take my temperature, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, and this is I want I want the, our listeners to hear this, is that it's very interesting because I think if you were to ask me what's my favorite, uh, Matthew was my favorite, and I think it had a lot to do with listening to Mark teach it. And therefore, um, you will shape people. I mean, I have been shaped by the love of a particular gospel or whatever reason that someone else has. And so it is good to recognize both the unity and the diversity within the, the four gospel set. And so there are some very, you know, profound and good distinctives. Um, and then there are, Drew, do you have a favorite gospel for? I think I would say Mark, actually. Not be only because it's the Cliff Notes version of Matthew, <laughs> but it's just, it's uh, the one I've spent the most time kind of yep. sitting in over the last few years. So, yep, Brian. Uh, John. John. It was the most instrumental in my own personal conversion, and it's the one I love to teach the most okay. by far. So that's neat. That's real neat. Well, Mark, um, you, you kind of went through there a little bit, and you kind of described the, the distinctives. And so I want to ask you, what are, some, what are some unique aspects of Matthew's gospel that our people who are hearing the gospel being preached at, what should they be looking for? What, to, what should they be um, anticipating? What should they be appreciating about what Mark does in terms of how he ranges his material? What are some of the, um, uh, the emphases that he, he brings yeah, to the table? I think he does have a unique slant or bent different from the others, though alongside of at least Mark and Luke. And this is probably my favorite question to entertain because there are so many unique aspects to Matthew's gospel. Um, I think I have to put the accent on the first two. These are not all created equal. I want to give you a list, sure. but they're not all equal. And King and Kingdom, I probably default to F.F. F. Bruce, the Plymouth Brethren scholar who felt like that's what this book's about. And you've got Son of David, Son of Abraham, and a genealogy that works on the number 14, which is the, the numerical equivalent of King David's name. And so uh, I think King and Kingdom. This is not a democracy, this thing called church. This is a monarchy. There's a king. He has all authority. Brother Wilson used to say, if you know, he has all authority, then how much is left over for you? <laughs> None. Yeah. He's got it. He's the king. He's the king. And uh, playing that off in a political sense, even of the Roman Empire, that was quite a statement. And then he, the king brings a kingdom, son of Abraham, a lot of descendants there. And really how the book begins is how the book ends. The son of David, son of Abraham, the Great Commission, all authority. Well, that's kings. Kings have authority. And make disciples of all the nations. That'd be Abraham. So you have the bookends of the book that are really nicely put together. Uh, unlike Luke and John, Matthew never really states explicitly why he wrote the book, mm. but he arranges it in a way that you got a pretty good guess. And it's about the king of the kingdom. Now, beyond that, I'd have to say there are a number of other little sub-themes that that ride pretty high. And one of those is discipleship, uh, becoming a follower, a participating learner in the school of Jesus, where the bell never rings and school is never out. Mm. Um, Michael Wilkins, a great scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, says it's all about discipleship. Uh, certainly the accent falls on that pretty heavily. And you get that somewhat from the discourse material and intervening with the narrative. I'll have more to say about that in just a second. But making disciples, that's the job of the church. That's what we're about. Uh, participating learners and followers, people who obey Christ. Uh, one person said to follow, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to follow Christ is to obey him. That's what this means. So discipleship and what it looks like. I think another theme, and this has been more fun for me in recent years, is tracing how Jesus is really the true Israel. 
He's, he's uh, humanity, you know, at what God really intended. Somebody said that in the coming of Christ, um, uh, God was trying to say to the world, okay, world, I'm going to run it by you one more time. <laughs> this is what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. This, this is what I, and this is your truest humanity, Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews actually makes quite a bit of that. So Jesus being the true Israel, and more to the point, how Jesus uh, retraces Israel's steps is very significant, especially in the first four chapters. Uh, Matthew uses a technique we call typological exegesis, or types and the fulfillment. A type is simply a person, thing, or event predicted in the Old Testament that has a fulfillment in the New. And so you have the new as the antitype or the antitype. Yep, yep. And um, uh, Jesus, just in the first four chapters especially, you read those first four chapters, you think, this is the story of Israel. <laughs> Coming up out of Egypt. Coming up out of Egypt. Uh, going into the wilderness. Uh, the baptism in water. Yep. Uh, the whole thing. You just go, wow. And that's been a much more fun theme for me. Uh, while we were in our little ministry in Denver, before returning to the college, we had a Simply Get Jesus gathering that Tony Campolo shows up for, and N.T. Wright shows up for, and Philip Yancey shows up for, and they speak. And Campolo said that he asks his students for years, so why did Jesus come? Well, the typical answer is to show us God, to die for our sins, to get us to heaven, you know. Uh, but he says, rarely does anybody say, to fulfill his promise to Israel. But that's a big deal. Yeah. And then the church is the new Israel, uh, composed of both Jew and Gentile, which really was always the way it was supposed to be in the Old yep. Testament. Yep. So retracing Israel's steps and Jesus is the new Israel, the new Moses, that became big. Another one was, I love to watch how Matthew, because he's quite organized actually, <laughs> unlike a few sermons I've graded and, and have preached, <laughs> and have preached myself. And yet Drew did not have you not for one of those. You were not one of those. I was one of those actually, sadly enough. <laughs> well, I preached my share of wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> but I love how Matthew, I guess it's his being a tax collector, he just loved a sense of structure, debit column, credit column, I don't know. But the alternating pattern of narrative and discourse hmm. is actually a clue to its purpose. Uh, so you've got, you know, four chapters of narrative. Then you have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, discourse. In fact, you have five speeches, and you have five books of Moses in the Old Testament, and five books of the Psalms. And there are many patterns. You've got eight Beatitudes. You've got eight parables in chapter 13. You've got eight woes to the Pharisees. I mean, it really is fits hand in glove more than you think at first. So the example would be this, that Jesus gives his discourse, the kingdom of heaven colliding with the kingdoms of this world uh, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But then in 8 and 9, Matthew clearly is collecting some stuff topically to show us this is how the king lives out his own kingdom. Miracles that he performs, ways he interacts with people on a daily basis, treating them with dignity and respect. This, this is how it works. So uh, one thing I'd encourage with regard to reading the text and, and watching this alternating of narrative and discourse in Matthew especially is to remember that in the Gospels, change of event does not always mean change of theme. Okay. Whoa, whoa, you can have, whoa, 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 okay, okay, okay. Say, because change of event does not necessarily mean yeah. change in theme. So we're going to be having a couple of events that are really kind of emphasizing the same idea. Is that kind of where you're? Correct. Okay. In other words, you could have a parable. You could have a miracle. Okay. You could have a partial speech, an encounter with somebody. And woven through those different things was a common theme. Okay. Think of it this way. When you're in the middle of Matthew, you have what I call, though more prominent in Mark, maybe, the bread m narratives, or the boat narratives, or the blind narratives. 
uh, they're more packaged tightly than you sometimes think. But it could be like the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, who Jesus said it's not right to take the children's bread, okay, bread, and throw it to the dogs. And he just came out of multiplying bread and fish for the multitudes. So they're bread stories that weave their way through the so different events. So change of event in the Gospels does not always mean change of theme. A common theme can run for several chapters. Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. Another thing See, I like. That's good for, let me tell you, yeah. that's good for a preacher. Like as, as yeah. we're going to be preaching yeah. this series, yeah. it's, you know, that's a great, that's a great yeah. lesson for us to, to remember as well. And, and you know, you usually don't find those first reading. Yeah. That's not a naive reading. Yeah. You, you, that's over uh, several readings where you finally say, oh, now I see some of that coming through. So what do you do when someone says to you, Mark, like, uh, you know, and I, I probably got this more uh, in the local church than I would teaching at a college, but are you reading too much into that? Like, are you making yeah. more than necessary? How do you respond? It scares to me to death. <laughs> um, yeah. I have this terrible nightmare that I'm going to get up to heaven, <laughs> you know, and uh, Paul's going to come up and say, you remember that sermon you preached at Sunnybrook Church on Colossians 2? That was awesome. Not at all what I had in mind, <laughs> but it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. I don't, I'm not into creative exegesis. A text can't mean what it never meant. I don't, I don't like imposing my little puny eyes and worldview and way on the text. I want as much as I can humanly do. I want to let the text speak for itself. I want to take the text on its own terms. And yet, the only method of Bible study I see in the Bible is the constant rereading of the text. Never do I see look up words. Never do I see take attention to the context. Which you do. Which I do. A lot. And I push it hard, <laughs> cram it down their precious little throats. But there is this constant musing. The old the rabbis would talk about musing on the text, where you just groan over the passage. Hmm. Almost like a Lectio Divina, uh, inserting your name into it, making it personalized. And when you do that, that's when you start seeing some things that you didn't see before. I hope that's the Holy Spirit's aid in interpretation and helping us along the way. But we do have to be careful. There is some times to walk on eggshells when it comes to that. I'll mention a couple other things. Sure, go right ahead. Yep. I love the double witness of Matthew. Matthew okay. has a double witness many times. What I mean by that is um, law and prophets, <laughs> the two twin testimonies of Jesus being the fulfilled Messiah, the one who would come to fulfill God's promise to Israel. You got two demoniacs. Mark and Luke just have the one. You have two donkeys at the triumphal entry. You have two blind men. Why always two? Well, Matthew's the closest thing to the Old Testament, you know, both providentially, canonically, as far as that goes, but also just, uh, you know, the quotation and use of the Old Testament. And I think part of it is in the Old Testament, you establish truth by two or three witnesses. And so he just always gives two. He just, that doesn't mean, because one text can't contradict another text unless one affirms what the other denies. Yeah. So if Mark only comments on one and Luke, Matthew says there's two, it doesn't mean there wasn't two. It doesn't mean that what, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of the principle. Yeah. I think the place of money is a little more prominent, even in Jesus' illustrations, in his parables in Matthew, money parables. And I think that's because Matthew was a tax collector. He just was interested in that. Matthew's the only one that tells us about the coin caught in the fish's mouth. And they, the only miracle Jesus ever did to profit himself, to take yeah. care of his own needs. Yeah. 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 And then the, the bribing of the soldiers at the tomb. And so he's just interested in this stuff because he's a money man. The role of the Old Testament, of course, is huge. After Revelation, Hebrews, you know, depending on how you look at some of the allusions to the Old Testament, Matthew has to be in the top five of the 27 books in the New that use the Old. So this was a, I mean, Matthew begins like the Old Testament began and ended with genealogies. 
uh, if you think of Second Chronicles as the last Old Testament book, technically, and the first one being Genesis, a listing of the nations, a listing of the, well, then that's how, how the Old Testament began and ended is how the New Testament begins. Hmm. So Old Testament, one of my teachers used to say, Wilberfield used to say, how could you even understand Matthew 1.1 if you don't know anything about the Old Testament? Yep. I love the Emmanuel brackets. I love the Emmanuel brackets. Uh, you shall call him his name Emmanuel for he, God with us. And then you get to the end at the commission, and I will be with you to the end of the age. I love those. I, I like the theme of righteousness. I, I'm still trying to understand that big word. Uh, and there's a lot of people who have different views about that today. <laughs> but I think Jesus' use of righteousness, meaning setting things right and being right with God, are, is a little different than Paul. I think Paul has another aspect of that in mind. I think, I think for Jesus, the very first words of Jesus in Matthew is, no, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness, yep. righteousness is a huge word in the Sermon on the Mount. So how does God set the world right? That's a little bit the thing. How do you live right? And so this book will help with that. And then just mountains. Matthew mentioned more mountains than any of the other gospels. A lot of things take, mountains became a place of revelation for God. And then this is the only gospel that mentions church. And since we're churchmen and we care about the church and we love the church, he said, I will build my church. And if this guy doesn't repent, you tell it to the church. <laughs> so this is the churchy gospel. And I guess that's another reason why I kind of default to it. Yeah. Those are reasons I like it. There a lot of other unique things about Matthew. Do you guys have any questions before I move on to the next one, just about some of the unique aspects of Matthew um, in terms of... Uh how we should prepare. And, and so both of you are listening to this and the majority of times on Sunday morning, you're listening to someone else preach, um, but then you're also going to be preparing to preach as well. So any other ideas or questions that you have for Mark before we move on to some of our other thoughts? Here's a quick question. I've just been, this is maybe sad to say, but just recently been kind of caught up and fascinated with this idea of just reading a text over and over and over and over again and not pulling out stuff yeah. you know do you do you have actually mark when you preach or teach a text do you have a a number of times you try and read through anything or if you're going to go through the gospel of matthew if our church is going through the gospel of matthew together do you have a number of times you go i, I don't feel like i've got a real hold of it until i've read it through this many times i don't have a magic number what I do with my Bible software is I look through every English translation I've got of that text mm. for the week. And the reason is because I can deal a little bit with the languages, Greek better than Hebrew, but uh, I'm no Bruce Metzger or Greek scholar. So I want to see what the other guys that know it better than I have done in English with it. Mm. So I like the New Living Translation to tell you the truth written for junior higher level. That's why most of us can understand it. Uh, but I, I, my default set, I've gone to ESV. I read it through several different translations. That'd be my answer. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher, said he never preached from a text he had not read 50 times. Wow. Wow. That's a lot, but that's that constant. That's the really Bible method of Bible reading. Yeah. Reading and rereading and rereading. So I don't have a magical number, but yeah, I suppose by the time I'm done, I've read, I may have read the text 20, 30 times probably. Well, and it's, it's even important. We've been encouraging uh, the people. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're part of the Sunnybrook family, we've been in encouraging you to not only read it in different translations, but to actually even to listen to it. And one of the beauties now of you version is to have the yeah. text read over you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a good part. I mean, I like the idea of them using um, the reason why Mark, you, you might even wonder, so is Mark so smart? Is that how he figured out the... Um, 
the kingdom references or the King David references. And you would admit this. A lot of it is just I've spent a lot of time there. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has revealed these things by me just lingering long Mm -hmm. in those texts and in those ideas. And so as much as people say, wow, how did you know all that? It's, you know, spend enough time in the Gospels and you just can't help but, but pick up who Jesus Christ actually is. Well, you know, Mark, we are preaching through this Gospel and we're literally preaching through it. Um, we're not going to, we'll, we'll probably take a break a, a couple of times here and there, maybe do two weeks of something, uh, whether the calendar uh, leans in, in that direction, or if we feel like we need to go back and maybe deal with a topic uh, that we want to hit for a few weeks. But other than that, it's exegetical walking through the entire gospel of Matthew. And uh, right now in most churches, it's a five-part series on your marriage, a six-part series on something. And uh, any any advice to us, whether it be a who are preaching or uh, our congregation in terms of listening um, about that methodology. Uh, What happens when we spend two years in a gospel? How do we keep it from just becoming boring or getting lost or seriously more Jesus stuff? You know, there's the good side of that, but how do we keep them? How do we keep it fresh? How do we keep Jesus interesting? You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's only, (laughs) which is silly. It's only challenging because we are who we are. It's not because he's not exciting. Yeah. Not because he's boring by any stretch of imagination, but a long series. Uh, yeah, I think there are times when you do the shorter series on family life and, you know, church leadership and other things. I think there's a place for that. But there's also time to kind of throw the calendar out the window and say, when we're done, we're done. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through this and just take our time. And um, there are a lot of things to say about that. So, uh, planned preaching is um, always selective. Because when you select to have this long series in Matthew, you are necessity selecting things not to preach about. Yep. That's just how it goes. But um, there's a place for it. At least I'd say this to you. Even if you're going to be in Matthew for quite a while, it's not as long as Bernard of Clairvaux was in Song of Songs. Uh, <laughs> this is a great story. He did 16 years of that and only got to chapter 3. So there was somebody that should have gotten married. But anyway, uh, I just think that probably, uh, you know, you got a, you got some time here. And yeah. that's that's a plus, not a minus. So look at it that way. You guys who teach from the stage and the congregation as they listen. Uh, I guess a couple of things I'd throw in about it. Uh, it does demand something of those who teach from the stage. Uh, they, they should feel the burden of that. It is what uh, one man called burdensome joy. And uh, so be committed as the teachers, to bake and serve fresh bread every week, (laughs) which means you have to work at variety in your approach. One little pedagogy thing that I learned from one of my teachers, just try to do it different than you did last week. Mm -hmm. If you started with a joke for last week, don't start with one this week. Do do something to change it, you know, variety being the spice of life. What's odd is when you plan for continuity, you achieve variety. Many people think it's opposite, you know, if you just want to wing it each week to make it different. You won't. You'll fall back on your default settings. It's better to say we're going to plan to do this this week and this next week as a way we move through this. So we'll plan for that continuity. Reality is you'll achieve the variety for the people. It's kind of a paradox a little bit. Second thing is I'd say that for the church, those who are listening to this podcast and those receiving the teaching, they need to practice the what the, you know, Desert Fathers and the spiritual directors like the Dallas Willards and the Richard Fosters and those kind of people called the discipline of slowing. The very thing we're talking about, about the text, studying the text, that meditate, learn, know what text is being up for this coming Sunday, 
Read it as a family at your dinner table. We did that for years because of the church we attended in Joplin. We would read the text that was up for Sunday with our children and discuss it. Uh, I mentioned Lectio Divina earlier, a, a way of slowing down and meditating on the text as you go, inserting your own name in spots, maybe when appropriate. Uh, pray and implement it into life. Uh, pray for those who teach. That's one way to up the ante by the congregation is to the, who's up this week. Oh, we need to pray that God will really use him. And I think then both teachers and learners should look for signs of, of providence. And what I mean by that is I am amazed when a church gives themselves to going through a long series of, of a Bible book that really um, how the Holy Spirit, I guess, for lack of a better uh, person to give this to credit, connects the dots between the canon and the curb. I don't know how else to say it. Um, you never could have seen that coming. But something's happened in the United States of America, or something's happened in the world, oh, yeah. and the text that you just happen to be on, happen to be on, you know, this coming week, addresses that situation perfectly. Or it doesn't. And what I mean by that is, it's too hot of a topic. But in three weeks, yep. it comes up naturally in the text, and that's when people will have their emotions starved back to planet Earth, and they'll be able to deal with it more rationally. So I think just giving ourselves to Bible preaching, letting the Holy Spirit work a little bit more about the calendar than we do, might be a really respectful way to deal with the passage. It, God will put it together. I, he'll honor our desire to spend time with Jesus in the Gospels. He will honor that. I, I uh, preached through uh, a couple of years ago. We started a series on uh, kind of the core of the elements of the gospel. And uh, I remember going back to our life group and one of the guys said to me, you know, Jim, you, you start every series by saying, this is the most important possible. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is you need. <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah, but today I was right, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it was about the gospel. So <laughs> when I did that about marriage, I wasn't, I, I was wrong, actually. I need to apologize. And when I did that thing on, on, uh, on how to, you know, whatever it might be, our finances, I was actually wrong. The gospel really is, you know, the center. And so I think that kind of drives us to that, that particular point. Um, any concerns that you guys have? I mean, because this is a little bit of a change for us, yep. even though we've been committed to doing it. But we kind of go back and forth, ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. uh, comments or questions? Ryan? I, I would say one of the dangers we have when doing a long series is we will encounter people who grow bored with it, right? And, and to me, that might betray the fact that the only time you truly engage Scripture oh, is good. for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Because, you know, I don't preach for an hour and a half, Mark. By the way. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, that's not what he's saying, but our, our, say, serv our service time isn't even an hour. <laughs> 40 minutes. <laughs> and then if you're really digging into Morgan's time, 42 yes, minutes. 42 minutes. But that, like yep. a, a boredom with that or a, uh, this again might just betray that you, you don't have a robust relationship with God's revelation, that you're not even attending other classes, but you're not spending time in, in the Word yourself. Because I, I just think, A, it, could, it, it ought to never be boring on its own right, but perhaps the variety could come in other places and where... You know, I one of my favorite things to do when I whenever we're preaching a long series is to um, I love the centerline references in my Bible, and so I'll go read your text for the week, and then I'll spend a lot of time looking at other texts that are talking to it. Particularly if it's a New Testament passage, I love to find where it's connecting to the old, and in that sense, I'm getting some variety, even if it's not being preached. Yeah, that's that's good, that's good. Okay, 
Um, one last question, uh, Mark, and I really do appreciate you taking time. I know that it's been a busy weekend. Your uh, your favorite child got married this past weekend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least it feels like it, right? Favorite, I mean, favorite one in her age bracket. Yeah, right? exactly. But it probably feels like it. And seeing, yeah. uh, that was What's their, the last one? Their, so. their last one, their youngest one that just recently got married. Um, but, you know, we, we've got uh, a congregation that uh, is in a college town, and so they've always really appreciated um, the not just putting the cookies on the low shelf, but even making them reach for the cookie occasionally. Um, and yet they're not, I mean, the majority of them are not Bible college trained. Um, so what advice would you give them who probably don't have the, the privilege of the, the education that those of us in what we would call, and I hate this, but it's true, professional mm-hmm. ministry, right. they don't have those things. So how can they get the most out of this? Because there are a lot of people at Sunnybrook uh, that have a real heart and want to get this, really have a desire to get this. So uh, is there anything they can do uh, short of coming to Ozark Christian College for well, we a would. year or two? We'd take <laughs> yeah. them, wouldn't we? We'd take them. We'd love, be okay. to, we would love to have them. But how can, but how can they get the most out of this? Sure. And uh, I think, first of all, before giving maybe four specifics on that, I would just want to say that God went out of his way to uh, communicate his word to all of his people. And think about the vocatives. Think about the direct addresses in the Bible. God addresses husbands and wives and children and slaves and Mm -hmm. masters and at times the nation of Israel or the church or the, in other words, the direct addresses themselves indicate, yeah, God even expects children to understand this. Think of the fact that the New Testament was written in a certain style of Greek language called Koine, common language. When they translated it, it was the Latin Vulgate, the vulgar language, the street language, the, and I don't mean crass, I yeah. just mean the common language of the people. God goes out of his way to commute. He, he really, there is this expectation Maybe God has more respect for our intellect than we do because he made it and he knows it can, like a muscle, be stretched and used. So we want people to stretch. I would say a couple of Bible study tips maybe. Uh, one would be don't forget the interrogative friends. You have some wonderful interrogative friends, who, what, when, where, how, why. The, the, when you're just using those questions in your Bible reading, it helps so much. Why did Jesus say this? Uh, does he treat other people like this? Mm. You know, uh, Mark Strauss from Bethel out in California has a new book out, Jesus Behaving Badly is the title of it. And uh, it's, uh, well, why would Jesus be so harsh to the religious people? How come he was so kind to people that look like they're people of ill repute? What's going on here? And asking why or who or what. So use the interrogatives. That, that goes a long way. Sometimes you'll raise questions that the text itself doesn't answer or the text doesn't answer it there. Yeah. It'll answer it someplace else. So the interrogative friends. I think also asking the question, uh, what did it mean, as much as you can? What did it mean so that I know what it means? Uh, my, my presupposition is it cannot mean what it never meant. So if I have respect for what it originally meant, that will help me with actually keener application. You know, our applications get uh, generalized. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, and, and the answer is always Jesus. You know, that's, yeah. But if we, it, it will be more like a rifle as opposed to a shotgun if we just say, well, what did it originally mean? Can I read the text on its own terms, just read and reread as we've talked about here today, uh, to where maybe I can get to its meaning today, but by going way of what it meant originally. A third thing is uh, one of uh, my preachers that uh, spoke to my soul for so many years here in our church. He says, ask the question, why did God preserve this here for me? And not only does that have a devotional value, 
It's dangerous if that's your first question, maybe. Sure, sure. But on the other hand, if you never get around to asking that question, there probably won't be as much emotional ownership of the text. And so asking that at some point. And then I think I would nurture a Psalm 30, 139 spirit, that wonderful psalm that celebrates God's uh, very intimate acquaintance with us, knowing us as unformed substances in our mother's womb. Uh, the, the psalm ends by saying, Search me, O God. See if there be any offensive way in me. And at some point in reading through Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, how is God critiquing me? We talk about critiquing the text or understanding the text. Well, how's the text critiquing you? Mm-hmm. You know, Where does it body slam you? Where does it make you sing and dance and have joy? And uh, so nurturing a spirit that always says, what's this need to do inside of me? Uh, you know, when the Sermon on the Mount ended, nobody said, wow, that boy can turn a phrase. Or, wow, that was really fantastic rhetoric. What they said was, he speaks with authority, not like the other guys. And so that sense of authority, God's word coming into the human soul, colliding with all of your presuppositions, all your other things, and then making some sense for a way of repentance became the key. So those are just little things. Uh, There's much more sophisticated stuff to go into about interpretation, but I think everybody can do those things. Anybody can do that. No, that's good. Um, guys, want to want to kind of add any final comments or ask any final questions? You know, Drew, if you want to kind of just reflect back on the many classes you didn't take with Mark for some reason. <laughs> I settled for Mark Moore. Oh, <laughs> regretting yeah, that now. Regretting yeah, that now. Exactly. Now you're going, wow. This is amazing. Drew's so, actually going to probably start subscribing to our podcast I might, now. <laughs> I might come back to Ozark and enroll. <laughs> Well, I think you're a great preacher, Drew. I think it would be good for you to do that. <laughs> I really do. I think you're a phenomenal communicator, and and Mark Scott would even help you be better at that. I, I would. So. I would not go back to kindergarten once you've been in first grade. To tell you the truth. <laughs> but anything else you guys want to kind of throw up or add? I mean, you're kind of looking kind of quiet. Lots of lots of great stuff here, but didn't know if there's anything you want to add particularly. Don't have to. I, I would say one final thing, if I could. I love James S. Stewart's statement the great Scottish preacher who said, with Jesus, and you're going to study a lot about Jesus in this series of Matthew, with Jesus, it's wonder after wonder, and every wonder true.